afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Sumich, a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. Welcome to our show. Let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. As I said earlier, my name is Father Anthony Sumich. I'm a priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. We work here in the Auckland Diocese under the invitation of Bishop Patrick Dunn. We are a Society of Apostolic Rite, founded in 1988 to bring the Latin Mass and all the traditional sacraments to the church in general, and in this case into the Diocese of Auckland in particular. So our work here in Auckland is based at St. Anne's Chapel in Te Atatū South, and if you want to take a look where that is, we have all the information about it on our website at fssp.nz or our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. And, uh, yeah, we can you can also check out all of the times and uh, uh, the variety of things that we are working on at our apostolate here in Auckland. And... Uh, look at mass times, confession times, and contact numbers, and so on and so forth. So you're very welcome to do that. But for the most part, at this program, uh, we are talking about church history, the history of the Catholic Church and Christianity in general throughout the world. If you have been listening in over the last few weeks, you would realise that we've been talking about the Great Schism, the Great Western Schism. And only a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the ending of that schism, but then moved over into the uh, incredible and uh, story, the historical story of St. Joan of Arc and that she had been uh, receiving elocutions from Almighty God and that she wanted to uh, free France from the English kings who were claimants to the French throne and with a lot of intrigue going on in France and France was pretty much capitulating to the English armies and then along comes this young maiden uh, and wanting to lead a French army and trying to motivate the French Dauphin um, in order to be able to fight back against the English um, so picking up from where we were last week uh, that at this point in time, um, St. Joan of Arc had refused to fight on Ascension Thursday. Uh, but the very next day, uh, on the day after Ascension Thursday, the Friday on the 6th of May, um, she and her men took the English fort of Augustans across the river. And the next day, they attacked the strongest English position of all, Tourelle's Fort, also across the river. This could not be carried by a single charge, but required no less than 13 hours of fighting, during which Joan of Arc was wounded. She pulled out the arrow with her own hand 
And when you consider this, you know, this is a, a young girl, a 17-year-old girl wearing chain mail and armour, which would be rather heavy, and especially at that age, she'd never seen a battle before in her life until two days before, and yet she has an arrow uh, stuck in her and she's pulling it out by herself. And when Dunois, the commander of the assault, prepared to sound the retreat, she overrode him and led a final charge, standard in hand. Now, Joan always fought simply by carrying her standard. Her short sword was only for self-defense, and she would not use it to cut down English soldiers. If You, you have to understand that wielding a sword, especially when you're fighting for some hours on end, is an extremely uh, difficult thing to do and requires a large amount of muscle mass and strength to be able to do that. Um, so, with this charge led by Joan carrying a standard, the English panicked. And knights plunged into the river, incredibly in full armour. Tyrell's fort was taken and burned, and all the bells of Orléans rang, rang out with priests and people singing the Te Deum Laudamus, the great hymn of thanksgiving. The next day, all the English around Orléans withdrew, and on May the 10th, Joan of Arc rode into Tours, standard in hand to greet her king and urge him to go at once for his coronation to Reims Cathedral, the traditional place for the crowning of the kings of France. Now it was Sir John Fustolf's turn. He was an effective veteran campaigner, grossly libeled, if in fact Shakespeare took him as the model of Falstaff. After all, the name is slightly close. One is Fistolf and the other one is Falstaff. He favoured caution in the face of the inexplicable. But Lord John Talbot outranked him and on the June 17th he ordered Fistolf's reinforcing army to keep on marching to relieve the castle of Beaugency down the Loire River from Orléans, which had been held by the English and attacked by the French. Learning the next day that Beaugency Castle had already fallen, the English began to retreat, but it was too late. Joan the maid was upon them near the village of Pate, shouting to her men, you have spurs, use them. She faced some of the best soldiers and two of the best commanders the English had, veterans of 14 years of war. It didn't matter. The battle was over in a matter of minutes. 2,000 English were killed, 200 were captured. Captured. Lord Talbot and Lord Scales were captured. Fastolf barely escaped with his life. It was the only battle Joan the Maid ever fought in the open field and as quick and complete as a military victory can be. Afterwards, Joan took a mortally wounded English soldier on her knees and persuaded him to confess his sins before he died. It is moments like this that show Joan the Maid as not only a saint for France, but for all of Christendom. And this brings us to the threshold of mystery. For the question must now be asked, even though we probably can't answer it, either from history or by faith, why were God and his heavenly messengers so much on the side of France in this conflict? Why did they send Joan the Maid to save France? No matter how often his aid is asked, 
he rarely takes sides openly in warfare among Catholics, provided they are serious Catholics. And for all their personal and collective sins, both the French and the English in the year 1429 were both serious Catholic peoples. In all the history of sainthood, there is no one else like Joan the Maid, not only as a military commander, but also as a recipient of a divine calling to bring victory to one side in a war between Catholics. The only explanation that, uh, at least I have heard that I sort of took some seriousness with, was that one can guess at, admittedly highly speculative, is that if France had become a mere uh, appendage of England as it appeared likely in 1429, it would probably have been drawn after England in rejecting the Catholic faith in the Protestant revolt during the following century. And that this might have ended in the destruction of the church in the course of that revolt. As we know, France stayed Catholic during the Protestant revolt. England fell away and many, many people died and England lost the faith. France remained Catholic for a lot longer period of time. So perhaps, I say perhaps, it is a fascinating and very significant historical fact that none of the succession of political and military forces most inimical to Christendom from the 16th to 20th centuries has been able to control more than one of the three great nations of the western fringe of Europe, Great Britain, France and Spain. The Protestant revolt took Britain but not France and Spain. The French Revolution took France but not Britain or Spain. Communism and its allies in the 30s briefly took Spain but not Britain or France. Nazi Germany took France but not Britain or Spain. The real importance of the preservation of French independence in 1429 may have been prospective to prevent a threat that would only materialise in the future and fulfil Christ's promise to Peter that his church would stand until the end of the world. And as for Joan herself, she was always more than simply a French patriot, as is shown not only by her care and concern for the English dead and wounded, but by a frequent invocation of the ideal of the crusade as the only rightful employment of arms by the Christian except in self-defense. At one memorable moment in her brief career, she revealed her own desire to be a crusader. Having heard of the destruction of churches, holy images and monasteries by the Hussites in Bohemia, she dictated a letter to them with a holy anger and a fiery enthusiasm that is so typical of this maid. She said, quote, I would have long since visited you with my avenging arm if I were not occupied with the English war. But if I do not soon learn that you have amended your ways and returned to the bosom of the church, perhaps I will leave the English and turn against you to exterminate this frightful superstition with the sword and end either your heresy or your lives. If you return to the light, if you enter the bosom of the Catholic faith, send me your ambassadors. But if you persist in your resistance, expect to see me with the strongest human and divine power to pay you in your own coin, unquote. This, of course, was not to be. 
St. Joan crosses history's sky from horizon to horizon with the speed of a meteor. And she was never to leave her own country. But of this, we may be absolutely certain that a crusading army led by Joan the Maid, descending the forested hills of Bohemia towards its ruined monasteries and the ashes of its martyrs, would never have fled before the rumbling of the war wagons of one-eyed John. Even after the great victory of Pate, it took St. Joan ten days of pleading, sometimes with tears, before the still timid Charles VII at last consented to set out for Reims Cathedral to be crowned as the King of France. The city opened its gates to him, or more likely it opened its gates to Joan. On Sunday, July 17 and 1429, she stood beside him, standard in hand, as he took the ancient oath to uphold the faith of its ancestors, to defend the church, and to adhere to the justice of his forefathers in ruling the kingdom which God had entrusted to him. And with those words, he was anointed with the holy chrism of St. Remy. Kneeling before him and embracing his legs, weeping but now with joy, Joan said, quote, Gentle king, now is executed the pleasure of God, who wanted the siege of Orléans to be raised, and who has brought you to this city of Rheims to receive your holy consecration, showing you that you are the true king and that the kingdom of France belongs to you, unquote. Immediately afterwards, Joan wrote Duke Philip of Burgundy calling for him and Charles VII to make a good firm peace which will last a long time and to forgive each other with a good heart, wholly as faithful Christians should. And if you want to make war, go and fight the Saracens. The final step in the victorious campaign to which Joan felt God calling her had always been in her mind the capture of Paris and the enthronement of the duly crowned King Charles VII there. But this was not to be just yet. The assault in Paris made by Dunois and the other supporters of Joan on September the 8th, with wholly inadequate forces and only minimal support from the king, was a failure. Joan took a crossbow shot in the leg and was left lying in the open till dark. Charles ordered her not to attempt another attack and being far from sure that she would obey such orders, had the bridge across the Seine, which the Duke of Alençon intended for her to use in the next attack, destroyed. Then Charles returned to the Loire region, ordering Joan to accompany him. Sadly and reluctantly, she did. For the next six months, she engaged in only the most minor military actions. Joan's action of leaving her armour <clears throat> before an image of Our Lady at, in Saint-Denis Cathedral just before departing from the Paris area at the King's order has often been seen as a kind of renunciation of active military leadership. But this was certainly not her intent. She soon acquired new armour and fought in several more battles before her capture in May of 1430. So, with that, but despite these reverses, Joan the Maiden had turned the tide of the war, and that could not be doubted. Testimonies from her enemies suffice to show it. First, the Burgundian chronicler 
Jean Wavrin de Forestal said the following. By the renown of Joan the Maid, the courage of the English was much altered and weakened. They saw, it seemed to them, the wheel of fortune turn harshly against them. For they had already lost several towns and fortresses, which had returned to the obedience of the King of France, principally by the enterprises of the maid, some by force, others by treaty. They saw their men struck down and found them no longer of such firm purpose and prudence as they had once been. Thus, they all were, so it seemed, eager to retreat. Then the words of the man in the best position to know just what the impact of Joan the Maid on his previously victorious army had been, the Duke of Bedford, regent in France and commander-in-chief of the English army, said the following. There fell by the hand of God, as it seems, a great stroke upon your people that was assembled there at Orléans in great number, caused in great part of lack of sad belief and unlawful doubt that they had of a disciple and limb of the fiend called the Pucelle that used false enchantments and sorcery, which stroke and discomfiture not only lessened in great part the number of your people there, but as well withdrew the courage from the remnant in marvellous wise. Unquote. In April of 1430, Jones' voices told her that sometime during the next two months she would be captured. To her horrified protests, they replied only that it must be and she must endure it. Their prediction was fulfilled on May the 24th, once again Ascension Thursday, almost exactly one year after she had raised the siege of Orléans. Having come to Compiègne to def help defend it against the Burgundians, she rode out from the town to lead a sally against the besiegers, who were quickly reinforced. Her troops broke, she waited too long to retreat, and when she did, the frightened garrison had closed the gates and raised the drawbridge, leaving her cut off. An archer in the service of the Bastard of Wendon pulled her off her horse and she was a prisoner. In November, the Burgundians sold her to the English for 10,000 livres tournois and the English put her prosecution in the hands of Pierre Cochon, fugitive bishop of Beauvais, who had cooperated with them and had consequently been expelled from his see when the French regained control of it following Joan's great victories in 1429. Bishop Cochon, therefore, had a score to settle with Joan, and he believed in being well prepared. In January of 1431, he assembled an enormous staff, consisting of a cardinal, six bishops, 32 doctors of theology, 16 bachelors of theology, seven doctors of medicine, and 103 associates, all to interrogate and produce the indictment of Joan. She was not allowed a single counsel. One 19-year-old illiterate peasant girl faced the mass brain power of no less than 56 ecclesiastical magnates and intellectuals, counting Cochon and his staff. With the most painful of all deaths, her portion if she failed, indeed, God had chosen the weak to shame the strong. 
The interrogation that followed is a drama that has fascinated nearly all who have read it for 600 years. Against the pulverizing, against the 56 to 1 odds, any ordinary man or woman, however experienced or well-educated, would have crumbled almost immediately. Joan held out for three months, three long months, through 15 formal interrogation sessions and numerous browbeatings in her cell, often by Bishop Cochon personally. She was refused permission to pray in the chapel or to make sacramental confession. When she did finally break, it was only for five days. Then she recovered and went to her martyrdom. The story of her persecution by Bishop Cochon is retold at length and deservedly in all the multitudinous biographies of St. Joan. There is neither need or time to go through the whole thing here. But a few highlights must suffice. Joan, to the bishop, at the third interrogation session said, You say that you are my judge. Beware of what you do, for truly I have been sent by God, and you are placing yourself in great danger. Joan, later in that same session, asked, if she thought she was in a state of she was asked if she thought she was in a state of grace though excommunicated she replied if i am not may god put me there if i am may god keep me there later when asked by Cochon if she were willing to submit to the judgment of the church replying that if she could be shown to have said anything against the faith she would retract it but would not deny her voices and asked if she would submit to the Pope, she replied, Take me there and I will answer him. Asked if she would submit to the Council of Basel, she replied that she would, whereupon Cochon bellowed, Be silent in the name of the devil. And then told the stenographer to write none of that exchange down. Later, facing the stake, she said, All the works which I have said and done shall be submitted to Rome, to our Lord, the Supreme Pontiff, to whom, after God, I refer myself. And as for my words and deeds, I did them on behalf of God. When at last she broke, she was handed an act of abjuration to sign, which she could not read. She signed it anyway, was sentenced to perpetual imprisonment and repented of her weakness in five days. To the undisguised satisfaction of Cochon, who cried out on hearing it, Capta est, we have got her. On May the 30th in 1431, Joan the Maid was burnt at the stake in the main square of Rouen. The treacherous Nicolas Loiselleur, who throughout the interrogations had pretended to be her friend while seeking damaging information against her for Cochon in their private conversations, tried in tears to crawl into the execution cart to beg her pardon. But the English guards would have none of it and pushed him away. Cochon, after some hesitation, allowed her to receive viaticum. Joan looked him in the eye and said, Bishop, I die through you. 
for half an hour before the stake, Joan prayed, asking the forgiveness of and for all present. As the fires were lit, she asked for a cross. A nameless English soldier made one from two bits of wood and handed it to her. With a last cry of Jesus, she died in the flames. John Tressart, secretary to the King of England, fled, saying, We are lost. We have burnt a saint. Twenty-five years later, on July the 7th in 1456, in a France entirely liberated from the English invader except for the city of Calais, in the cathedral of that same city of Rouen, its bishop, Jean Juvenel de Houssin, proclaimed the official verdict of a commission appointed by Pope Calixtus III in response to a petition from Joan's mother to re-examine the proceedings of Bishop Cochon, now dead. We say, pronounce, decree and declare the said trial and sentence to be contaminated with fraud, calumny, wickedness, contradictions and manifest errors of fact and law. And together with the abjuration, the execution and all their consequences to have been and to be null. Without value or effect, we proclaim that Joan did not contract any taint of infamy and that she shall be and is washed clean, unquote. The terms of the decree frequens passed by the Council of Constance before Pope Martin V had been elected required a new council to be convened five years after the adjournment of the Council of Constance. Then seven years after the adjournment of the next council, then every ten years thenceforth. Pope Martin's very carefully qualified endorsement of the council's decree did not confirm any action placing the council's authority above the Pope's, which frequents as well as Sacrosancta specifically stated. But Pope Martin, a pontiff of great discretion, thought it better to follow the schedule for holding councils set forth in frequents, to which many believed he had agreed, though undoubtedly he feared another council, and the likelihood that it would again claim authority superior to the Pope, this time when there was an incumbent Pope from whom to withhold it. So he was undoubtedly greatly relieved when the new council, duly convened at Pavia in April of 1423, was so poorly attended that no one could reasonably regard it as ecumenical. In June, he moved it to Siena because of an outbreak of plague, and in March of 1424, he dissolved it, despite vigorous objections from Guilhem Angmenol, Catalan delegate to the council in the service of Alfonso V of Aragon. Alfonso had been reverting to the long-time hostility of Aragon t- towards Italian popes, so vigorously encouraged by the Aragonese Pedro de Luna during the Great Schism, as his interest grew in laying claim to the Kingdom of Naples, where the popes had always favoured the French house of Anjou, over that of Aragon. De Luna had died at last in November of 1422, past 80, intransigent as ever, appointing cardinals on his deathbed to maintain his claims and elect a new antipope, which they did in June 1423, choosing Gilles Sanchez Munoz for the purpose, though hardly anyone else in Christendom paid any attention to Sanchez Munoz, 
the Count of Armagnac in France, was his only significant supporter outside the kingdom of Aragon. Alfonso found himself useful to play off against Pope Martin, though he never actually proclaimed the anti-pope except for a few brief weeks in the spring of 1426. Sanchez Munoz finally gave up his futile claims in 1429. By the terms of the decree Frequens, the next council was due to convene seven years after the adjournment of the previous one, whose few delegates had first met at Pavia and then at Siena. That would mean March of 1431. On February the 1st, in 1431, Pope Martin V called for a new council to meet at Basel in Switzerland to reform the church, establish peace, and seek the return of those who had ceased to practice the faith. The able Cardinal Gilano Cesarini, young and vigorous at 41, was appointed president of the new council to speak there in the Pope's name. Cardinal Cesarini had served Pope Martin well in Germany, England and, Ven- England and Venice, though he had no more success than anyone la- else in launching crusades against Bohemia in the time of one-eyed John. Then, on February the 20th, Pope Martin V suddenly dropped dead of a stroke. And at that stroke, we will end today's history, um, having talked about the sad but dramatic death of St. Joan of Arc and now moving into the direction of the the, uh, finishing off of the Bohemian Schism. So let's conclude with a prayer. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless and keep you over this weekend. Amen.